listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Newnham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome back. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong, of course. I have got Henry with me, as always. How are you doing, Henry? Oh, very well, Rich. Yeah, just enjoying the last glimpse of summer before we disappear into a despairful autumn when it gets cold and wet and we're... wow you sound cheery about it <laughs> i just i'm just having f- i like the sunshine and um it's uh the, you see the thing is when you get to winter and you can go into a pub with all your mates and you can sit around a log fire or something and have a beer that's fine but i don't know if that's going to happen this year who knows yeah it's very much that who knows situation right now I'm i'm with you on liking the sunshine but i think some of my favorite days are those kind of october november clear crisp mornings where it's it's cold enough for a jacket but it's just beautiful and totally clear skies yeah i was watching an interview with um david hockney the artist guy and he's talking about winter being um one of the lightest times of the year and i couldn't understand why and he said oh no all the leaves have fallen off the trees and there's normally a frost on the ground in the winter so all all the daytime is in the daytime, it's get light and it's lovely and airy. And I thought that's an interesting perspective because I see winter as a gloomy time. Well, it, I think it's a very, very polarizing thing in terms of that light, because if you just have that sort of low lying, thick cloud, it's really, really depressing for me personally. Like I hate those kind of days. But if you have a sunny day, it is a bright, sunny day. Yeah. Anyway, Richard Henry's weather forecasting channel will um, <laughs> will continue on another podcast. We'll probably have to have another another ramble about climate. We have the right podcast name for weather related. Yeah, we chat. do actually, don't we? There we go. Um, let's let's do it. <laughs> let's um, let's talk about some music. And I think your choices today. Who are you going to talk about? Well, I sort of hinted at this during the Chemical Brothers episode. I have been wanting to talk about these guys for a while. It's Death in Vegas, and I've picked the Contino Sessions, which I absolutely love as an album. Cool. And as soon as you mentioned it, my my heart didn't sink. It was almost my heart kind of panicked because I don't really know very much about Death in Vegas. And when they were around, they were famous for a couple of songs, but I didn't really get into them. Mm-hmm. So... Tell me about their style, because my impression of them is of a uh, a slightly grouchy Chemical Brothers. They're quite moody, I guess, because of their main single, which you'll probably talk about. Mm-hmm. And so that just stuck in my head, and I didn't even bother to explore them. So it's really interesting that you say that, because I think a lot of the things that people think of when they think of Death in Vegas are not always fair. So... It's absolutely fair for the Contino sessions to suggest that they are brooding and moody and all those things, because they are. So let's talk about them as a band first, and then I'll come back to that. So Death in Vegas, their Wikipedia entry describes them as an English electronic music group for which Richard Fearless serves as frontman. They're influenced by a wide range of musical genres, including psychedelic rock, electronica, krautrock, craftwork... And dub and industrial. Yeah, so I'm going to just cut in straight away there. Yeah. As soon as you said psychedelic rock, my brain was just couldn't understand that because I read the same thing and I thought, hang on, that's not Death in Vegas. They're a, they, they don't do that. I thought they were a kind of electronica band. I suspect that if you'd only really listened to Death in Vegas when they were around, so their main releases are across the turn of the millennium. 
And so if you'd only listened to them back then, I suspect they just wouldn't have even fallen anywhere in your general wheelhouse of what you enjoyed back then. And so you might well have been dismissive of them then, but actually now you might enjoy them a lot more. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And actually, when you mentioned them to me, um, I did start going back and, and I listened to the, the casino sessions properly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a bit of a mind opener, really. Um, I didn't expect that type of music. Yep. So quickly talk about the rest of the band. So the band was formed in 94 by Fearless and Steve Hellier and actually were under the name of Dead Elvis. But then they discovered that an Irish record label was also called Dead Elvis. And so they changed name to Death in Vegas and called their first album Dead Elvis instead. And that first album, I wouldn't have listened to it because I hadn't listened to it for years. And I'd forgotten that it's this very light and airy, sprawling psychedelic electronica effort it's sort of a bit all over the place but it's much more light and airy than i had considered death in vegas ever to be so that was sort of an interesting thing for me but it is a bit sort of a bit all over the place it feels like they don't really know exactly what they want to do helia left after that record and then was replaced by tim holmes between their first two albums although it does have a credit on aisha Now, Death in Vegas sort of emerged into that big beat electronica world alongside people like the Chemical Brothers, and he was DJing in that world. And so I think that's why Death in Vegas are considered to be sort of peers of Chemical Brothers, whereas I don't think of them that way particularly. They they came into the same world, and the reason why I wanted to do Chemicals first was because it sort of sets some of the scenery for that. Their albums include a lot of sampling and things like that but it's a lot more live musician work in their albums than there is in the kind of classic big beat artists work yeah because i definitely pigeonholed them in the big beat space right and so and if you listen to contino sessions it really isn't any big beat in there at all (laughs) no which is why i put the album on i was just thinking am i listening to the right artist is this the wrong contino sessions or something right uh, well, that's the thing. So the Contino Sessions is a very focused approach. It, it It's not a concept album in terms of being like an outright someone's called it a concept album, but it feels very much like they've got a tone and an understanding of what they wanted to do with that album, and it works as, as a full album. It's very dark. It's techno, but not how techno would be considered back then. There's a lot of live guitar live drumming all that kind of stuff that's in there it's very dark and moody it's very sinister it's not quite aggressive enough to be industrial someone described it as techno goth which i think again is sort of in the ballpark but it's it would conjure up unfair thoughts about them as a band goth seems too dark doesn't it i think they're more grumpy than goth right i've settled on psychedelic noir (laughs) (laughs) how about psychedelic grump yeah well i don't know that it's necessarily grumpy it's more sinister than grumpy yeah some of the lyrical stuff that i'll come on to is very dark and very brooding yes it's definitely not a cheery album compared to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about like the beths it's definitely the opposite of that from a from a mood perspective so the other thing that struck me when i went and did a bit of research on them is they seem to have been more of a big deal than i thought they were and this sort of bears out in 
the guest vocalists that they've had. So this album has Iggy Pop on it, for example, and Iggy Pop's... <laughs> kind of a big deal, yeah. Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream. They apparently would write songs and get an idea of what they wanted from the vocals from the songs, and then they would just ask someone and hope they would say yes, and then people would say yes, mostly, apart from Jason Pierce from Spiritualized, who apparently they really wanted, and they left him four messages and he never got back to them. So they took the hint. I, I was going to say, this is another weird thing about them, because I started looking at reviews of the album, and mm-hmm. it was really critically well received. Except for Pitchfork, who hated it, and have now deleted their review from their website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pitchfork kind of, yeah, they do that sometimes. But I think the more interesting thing for me was that it generally got a, a really warm review. And I don't remember at the time it being, they, they didn't suddenly get top of the bill at a festival because they were had an incredible album out and they didn't seem to be talked about. No one really seemed to know them in my circle of friends who were the kind of people that would have been listening to this kind of music across the rock to big beat spectrum, which they sort of sit in the middle of all that. I was the one that had bought the album, was trying to push it on everyone else and be like, guys, these guys are amazing. And everyone else was like, eh, who, what, or just not that fussed. So I don't know what it was about them or what it is about them that means that they get such critical acclaim, but not so much in terms of popularity. I do wonder whether it's just a case of them being not the easiest listen at times. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I think it's an easy listen, but I know this album intimately now. Yeah, yeah, true. And they toured with the Chemicals as well. They didn't really do a lot in America, but the Chemical Brothers took them out there as um, support. And I had a look at things, and they definitely were considered to be a dance act rather than a rock act, even though they did most of their album as live instrumental work. Which, again, is a bit odd, because if you think about Dirge, which is the opener on Mm -hmm. the album, it's not really a dance track, is it? It's more intense. It's not than that. at all. It's very <laughs> it's... much a psychedelic rock track. If you think about how it works, I think the thing is that there's electronic processing on some of the instruments. So you have that guitar intro and it's sort of slightly wonky. It's definitely not a straight up simple guitar sound, but the riff itself is very simple. And then you have that vocal from Dot Allison kick in the la 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 and again that's very simple she's almost used just as an instrument rather than a a true vocal Mm. and it just builds up then you get this very simple drum machine beat you know it's all these individually very simple layers that build an absolutely gigantic wall of sound and It's something that I absolutely love about it is it's huge crescendo dominated by the drums and the electric squeals and squawks and then it fades away. But it's it's a wonderful opener. It does that psychedelic thing of being massively layered and a huge sound. Yeah, well, Levi's picked it up, didn't they? Because I remember that's where I first heard it. It was a Levi's ever. And, and back in the late 90s, they were quite big in the advertising world and they would spend yep. quite a lot of money on their adverts. And if a song was associated with it, it would be quite a big deal. It's like, the, right. I don't know if you remember like Stiltskin, the rock yeah. band with the inside and that was a Levi's track as well. And I remember that purely because of the, the association there. So they they got in with a with a pretty decent brand to, to kick their name off. That's not the thing that caused them to have a big pull as musicians, that's the thing that got them well known. Yeah. But they already had this album in the bag with 
you know, huge names doing the vocals on it. So, yeah, I mean, I assume that they were sort of very cult famous in certain circles. But yeah, that Levi's album was exactly how I found them. Uh, I heard that track and apps that was just like, I need, I need to know who these people are. I want to go and listen to more and then went and bought the album. So that's the first song on the track. Um, but then yeah. in, and in my head, that's what you're going to get for the rest of the album. But that mm. doesn't quite happen. <laughs> right. Because Soul Auctioneer's the next track up. And that's, that's the Bobby Gillespie vocaled one. And it's spooky and eerie. I mean, the lyrics are unhinged. The vocals are unhinged. It's really fucked up. But you almost don't hear it if you're not really listening for it. It, it sounds a lot more like a kind of almost heading towards that trip hoppy, portis heady sound of right, which is really different to what I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've nailed it there. And then you've got two instrumentals. So you've got this really claustrophobic instrumental called Death Threat that's got like snarling guitars and it's got loads of electronic noise. And then it's got this repeated vocal sample that's apparently from Throbbing Gristle is the <laughs> band and the track is called Death Threats. And I went and had a brief listen to these guys and they're this kind of crazy, mad, psychedelic band from the late 70s, I think. And I always thought the vocal sample was different to what it actually is, but it's because they've taken it and kind of compressed it and fucked around with it. Yeah, and and this is, I guess this track is more where my head sits in terms of what I think of Death in Vegas as. It's Mm -hmm. quite gloomy and dark. Right, yeah. It's really, really like insular and heavy. Then it sort of changes tone a little bit and you have this track called Flying, which is more of a a light release in the middle of all that and then you have the most intense track on the album which is Aisha which is Iggy Pop well this this was big wasn't it I mean this I think this must have gone into the charts it was um, all over the radio um, it was when Iggy Pop was kind of well I see I was going to say he was his most famous but he's kind of always been famous so that's kind of that doesn't work right. but to have Iggy Pop in his prime on this made a made quite an impact and this i think is the track that makes me think noir now the whole thing has this sort of almost storytelling thread throughout the album but this one genuinely is a storytelling track about a serial killer basically so it opens with it's very like standard rock guitar riff and immediately you get Iggy Pop's spoken vocals and they're very noir style you know with that gravelly deep voice that he has saying Aisha we've only just met but I think you ought to know I'm a murderer and then it kicks off and then you've just got this dark story and it builds to this massive soaring peak with 70s keyboards and you've got him doing this kind of unhinged mumbling and screaming thing at the end of the at the end of the track it's very intense yeah which he probably had a heap of fun recording and yeah yeah I bet it's definitely one that you remember whether it's your thing or not you can't help but notice it when it's when it's played. And I can understand people not liking this album and this track because of the intensity and because of the slightly unhinged, bonkers nature of all of it. There's definitely an element of discomfort, I think, that that runs in the album. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's where I just didn't get drawn to them because of that. Mm-hmm. And some people will will love that kind of style but for me 
it's not the kind of thing I want to listen to when I'm sitting down and kind of with my cup of cocoa on a Sunday afternoon. It's, it is quite, it is quite <laughs> intense. Right. But I didn't expect the, the depth that's on this album. Right. It's not all intense and it's not all dark. I mean, the next track on the album is, is another release. It's this much less layered, much less heavy track called Lever Street, which is, 70s keyboards again and this one just has this beautiful winding guitar melody and it sort of sounds like a lonely walk in a rainy abandoned city but it's not heavy it's very much just like a wistful open thing yeah and this is the this is the weirdness for the whole death and vegas thing if you played that song to me and you said who's this i would never even if you said kind of put some (laughs) serious money behind it i wouldn't i wouldn't go with death and vegas on this just because it's you got this little kind of twee keyboardy twiddliness. It it's lovely actually. I quite enjoy listening to it. It's really good. And I think it's part of the reason why this album works so well is that they do know when to just release that tension and let it go and not it's I think this album's 48 minutes long and if you had 48 minutes of Aisha, I don't think I could listen to it. Yeah, and I think that's where I've made a a mistake when I, <laughs> in thinking that an album would just be more and more of the same when it's really not. It's it's quite expansive. It's quite interesting. And that's true very much for the last track on the album, which I really love as well, which is called Neptune City. And this one is really upbeat. It's this wonderful sitar and kooky keyboards and all this kind of stuff. It's very psychedelic and it almost feels similar to the way that the Chemical Brothers would finish their early albums with a much more lightweight upbeat long and winding track that's a bit more relaxed yeah i I love this actually i've been playing this kind of a few times since you mentioned that we talk about the album just because it's is really nice and light and and airy and because it's got the sitar in it's a little bit more interesting than just you know your, your standard guitar piece of music so yeah it's great i like it and i think it's quite a long well no it's not it's not as long as i thought it was it's only it's only just under five minutes long it's it's one of those tracks that's quite i don't want to say epic because it's not really epic it's more just like this wonderful chilled out thing you could listen to it at a festival at three in the afternoon in the sun laid out on the grass yeah yeah, i totally see that which you definitely wouldn't do for the rest of the album no and and that's the the weird part is that the themes are so different that I don't know, if you go to a festival, who do you see? Do you see the kind of, the intense death in Vegas, which is what I think you'd see, or this kind of more upbeat, friendly death in Vegas? I, I don't know. Never seen them like. I think you get a mix because they understand that it can't all be intense and it can't all be light. So it's more of that mix of things. And it's one of the things that Fearless says is that he, his name's not Richard, Fearless for real. That's that is just his stage name. Apparently, <laughs> someone put it down as DJ Fearless on some flyer, and it just stuck. It just stuck. Cool. Yeah. One of the things that he said is that he didn't want to make a light, uplifting album about the joys of life because he thinks that there's less to get into there. There's less creativity in there. Whereas a sad, dark album, there's so much that you can do with that. Which I don't know that I necessarily agree with that sentiment but i can certainly understand given what this album sounds like how he's tapped into that yeah well yeah try telling that to the beach boys and pet sounds and say that you can't have a load right. of brilliant work with a happy album I mean, <laughs> yeah uh, i think i think that's been mentioned once or twice in our uh, influences part of the podcasts 
Yeah, but yeah, I, 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 I do see. It's a bit like when you listen to actors talking in um, in films, and they always say they love playing the villain because there's so much more to it, and it's a more interesting mm-hmm. type of role than being a, a nice guy. So I can see why he's gone. There's there's more creative, interesting stuff down the the darker route. That does make sense. And you listen to their debut album; that's a lot lighter, and it's it's fun, but it's not that creative. It's not as engaging. And Scorpio Rising isn't the same dark, dingy, horrible, murky world. It's again it's it's less intense but for me that means it didn't have the same energy it's just not quite there like it's a decent decent album but it doesn't have that same level of the contino sessions but there are a couple of great tracks so hands around my throat is an absolute brilliant track that is it's got this bass line thing and then symbols which symbols is not a thing you pick out of a a piece of music very often but for some reason in this particular track it's very very distinct when you listen to it you know exactly what you're listening to uh it's very stylish and the vocals are from nicola cooperus it has this sort of detached cynical feel to them that really makes it feel almost a bit too cool for school but in a good way nice i'll check it out how many albums did they produce off after the Contino sessions? Because I just know for that that main album. Beyond that, have, have there been a few? There's another two or three. So it's diff- it's sort of difficult to know from. I had a quick look for this on Spotify, and there's a there's an album called Satan Circus, and there's an album called Milk It, which looks like it's more just greatest hits and remixes. Right. So I don't think that's an album on its own. And then you've got another album called Trans Love Energies and the 2016 album called Transmission. But they're not really albums that I've listened to at all. So I couldn't say for sure what I think of them. So Transmission, for example, has Sasha Gray doing a lot of the work on it. So I don't know whether it's more of a collaboration with someone else or whether it's an official Death in Vegas album. I sort of didn't really love Scorpio Rising and didn't really track their work after that. They're definitely one of those that I lost interest in. Hang on a second. I'm just Googling. It looks like... Is that... Sorry. I'm just um, I'm That's just right. looking at the Wikipedia thing. Yeah. It's, it's actually great. The porn star. Interesting. Wow. It's almost like porn stars have other talents than having sex. I know. But... Who knows? And that's it. So that's in 2016. So the other track that I really like from Scorpio Rising is the title track. And that is the one that Liam Gallagher did the vocals on. And it's cool, but it does sound more like an Oasis track than Death in Vegas. Yeah, and I recognise that one. And um, I I really don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't like it at all. I really hate it. It's just, it's it's kind of the worst of Oasis. Mm. It's just this kind of snarling. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think it's just that I love a lot of Oasis music, but if you if you get those vocals with a track that doesn't sound that interesting, it really rubs me up the wrong way. And so, yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of that one. I'm afraid. Are we yet again crapping on a Liam Gallagher driven collaboration with someone else and saying that he's just the less talented yes. Gallagher? Yeah, I think maybe we should just reserve like one free card that we can play every time because you know we've always said that we're not allowed to crap on artists, but <laughs> like gets an exception. I just, I sort of just wish he'd lighten up, stop trying to top his brother. Yeah, 
Just do your own thing, Liam. Be your own man. Stop trying to do the Beatles and beat your brother. Yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't done Oasis yet, actually. That's a, that's one for, for well, whenever. But yeah, we should yeah. do Oasis. We probably should. Ambler. So anyway, this uh, it, it doesn't work for me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass on that one. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, for me, it's more that it's a well-known track rather than necessarily one of my favourites, but it's it's one of the notable tracks on, on that album, partly because it's Liam Gallagher doing doing stuff with a band again, which I go back to shows you the pull that they had, even if they weren't necessarily, they weren't massive, massive at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely remember seeing them on festival bills. So I do I do remember them being kind of a pretty active band there. Have you ever seen them at a festival? I have. They played Reading and Leeds in 2003. And I think that was the year that I was at Reading. But yeah, I went to see them. They were, weirdly, from my perspective, in the dance tent. I don't think anyone came with me. I think it was the only one that went to see them. And I think... I think I'd had to finish a shift and then leg it over there to catch the end of their set. So I didn't get to see all of their stuff. But yeah, they had that real live band energy live because they were a band. They weren't just yeah. a couple of guys DJing. Well, that's so again, and my preconceptions are now blown out of the water. But so without actual, there were guitars on stage. It wasn't yeah. like two guys and some decks. So it was more like the kind of modern rock indie electronica crossover type bands so bands like broken bells uh i guess like the modern shins where you you have a lot of people doing classic instrumental guitars and drums and that kind of stuff but then you have a couple of keyboards and a couple of laptops and there's one or two guys doing stuff with that it's it's that kind of feel and setup nice yeah that's um that must have made for quite a fun experience, actually. Yeah. Seeing that live. It must have been more interesting than just the DJ set. It was great. I don't have more than a hazy memory of it, but <laughs> yeah. that's quite a hazy weekend for me. We're talking, what, 17 years ago now. So not one of the ones that's really stood out. I don't know that it was an outstanding set to the point where it seared itself into my brain, but I do remember enjoying a lot of bands at that festival, and they were one of them. Cool. You you mentioned that you went from the chemicals to death in Vegas. Was that a stepping stone into this fusion of rock and electronica, or was it just a was the Contino sessions a kind of oddity, which is just sits alone on your CD rack? No, it, it definitely is part of that expansion of my tastes to loving the blending of indie slash rock and electronica styles it's something that i've really enjoyed for a long time and i don't know that i really thought about death in vegas as an electronica band so much as a rock band when i was listening to this album i didn't really know how they were classified and for me it was very guitars and drumsy there was other stuff in there but i was sort of already used to some of the psychedelic stuff i've been listening to and so it just sort of fell into that almost a harder core rockier psychedelic style nice yeah yeah that makes sense and so yeah they've probably led me into listening to other similar stuff i mean you talk about the trip hoppy stuff that there's other things like that but they're, they're part of a general vibe that i enjoy and i think 
some of that darker, moodier, really in-your-face, big wall of sound, brooding stuff is certainly something that they would have been a heavy influencer of. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I definitely remember listening to um, to Dirge um, because it's mm-hmm. such a standout track. And and I definitely had it on a... It's probably a compilation album. I had it floating around on somewhere um, because, yeah, it, it does just um, capture you with the way it builds up. So, yeah, I the, the only thing I'm annoyed about is that I didn't realise how how different the the rest of the album was, and I just it's completely passed me by until now. Want to go and have a listen to, and I'm sure it probably has for a lot of people who would have been listening to this sort of music back then. They'd have seen the Levi's advert, they'd have heard it on the radio, but not necessarily listened to anything else on the album. But I think it's worth exploring, and it's it hangs together beautifully as a full album. And I I think for me often the most influential music is the stuff you keep going back to time and time again and doesn't really get to a point where you're like, oh, this sounds like an old record. It's something that still sounds fresh and enjoyable year after year. And I listen to the Contino Sessions frequently enough. I mean, not constantly, but probably have it on a couple of times a year or at least once every other year over the last decade and a half two decades since it's been released two decades it is, yeah i mean that's it's interesting how, how some bands age and some bands don't seem to and some albums just seem to just carry on you can just always put them on they sound good whereas uh, even like an oasis album which we've been talking about i haven't listened to one of those for a while well i i didn't really mention the fact that these guys are quite a uh, quite influenced by films apparently there's always films and things playing in the studio that, that Fearless has I think he's got some studio set up and you go in there and they've just got films playing in the background all the time so he's one of these film soundtrack film buff types that we've talked about quite a lot recently and I'm beginning to think that I should just go and search out musicians who love films and film soundtracks and just listen to them because apparently that's my thing but I think that aids in terms of the age of it it's it doesn't sound like an era it sounds like it's it could be a film soundtrack this could be a film soundtrack and like all things you get films that age really well that are just almost timeless and it feels that way as well true i didn't think about that but you're right it it does it does fit really well with the soundtrack because it's got those different changes in mood those really quite big changes which a lot of albums won't go near because you want to kind of have a theme but yeah, you're right. I, I I buy that. It's a good it's a good spot. Well, we talked about Ash, and I'm definitely not here to shit on Ash. But you listen to an Ash track, and it sounds like Ash from <laughs> yeah from that era. Like they are of their era. Burn Baby Burn is an absolute classic, but it instantly transports me back to a certain point in time. And I don't think that has aged badly. I think there's a lot of indie from that era that has aged badly, but it's very much their sound whereas death in vegas they have a sound they definitely have a sound but it's not necessarily as singular as some of those yeah i'm with you oasis is a good example oasis sounds like oasis you know exactly who you're listening to yeah i'm a little bit surprised and i'm glad that you brought them up now because the 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 idea i had of death in vegas in my head was that's not after listening to the album all the way through they're a very different band to that so yeah, well done. Good shout for bringing them on. Thanks, mate. I definitely think they're one that I don't think about as being 
a huge influence, but they're one that I've just kept going back to. So they, they absolutely deserve a slot on on this podcast. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, if others are listening and uh, were similarly tainted back in the late nineties and early two thousands, like I was, and just assume that they're just the dirge is all they have in their in their quiver, then you'll be pretty surprised. I think definitely worth a go. Absolutely cool. All right. Well, as always, you can find us at I Might Be Wrong UK on all the social meds, and you can come and talk to us. We like to hear from you, so. Come and say hello. If you know Death in Vegas and if you love Death in Vegas, definitely pop up and and have a chat. Yeah, I am looking forward to seeing who you throw at us next week. Cool. Cheers, Henry. Cheers, Rich. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.